We're in uh, Psalm 139. So Psalms 139. A great psalm, one you probably know very well. Um, Before we read it together, though, just a few words about it, just to orientate ourselves so we can get hold of it, as it were, as we're looking for it. Because the Psalms, you could just read them and then sort of smile and nod and move on to the next thing, but it's as if we're looking at someone's journal, spiritual journal, over their shoulder. That's what the Psalms are, and you can look at them like that. And if you look at them like that, suddenly they come alive again because you're seeing that someone's heart poured out before God. There's a passage in this psalm that almost every time I've heard it read is missed out. I think you probably will have heard the same. There are little sections in psalms often which kind of jar as you read through them. It's in verse 19, after having said all such wonderful things about who God is, verse 19 says, If only you would slay the wicked, O God! Away from me, you bloodthirsty men! And that's how it feels when you're reading through it. You feel like, what? It's almost like someone's chopped up a bit out of a psalm and put it in here and it just doesn't belong. And so often when you hear people read it, they neatly miss out those few verses and go on to the nice bits. But it's written as a whole. You can't do that with psalms. You mustn't pull psalms apart. They're not meant to be dissected and examined under a microscope. You're meant to feel psalms and get the drift of psalms and catch something of the passion. One of the guys I read says this, there's a perverseness to human thoughts about God that would be risible, laughable, if it were not so tragic. We find ways to make God small. But when we think about Iraq, when we think about Syria, when we think about what's happening in Ukraine, we don't want a small God, we want a big God, don't we? We want a God who can handle this stuff. Not some small, domestic, tame God. You want a big God. And our trouble is, we reduce God virtually to nothing. J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And in his introduction, he said this, No one is ever really at ease facing what we call life and death without a religious faith. The trouble with many people today is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. He's writing back in the 20th century, but we get his point. They have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admirations and respect, and consequently their willing cooperation. And if we the church are guilty of presenting too small a God, then how are people ever going to understand this great big God that can handle life? He can handle Iraq. He can handle Syria, he can handle Ukraine, he can handle your issues, big or small though they may be. Another commentator says this, any small thoughts that we may have of God are magnificently transcended in this psalm, yet for all its height and depth it remains intensely personal from first to last. Its characteristics as another of the Bible to express its great truths in the context of personal experience. Partly this is because God is never proposed as a subject for man's intellectual speculative inquiry, 
but for his devotion, worship and obedience. It's also because the Bible never considers a truth known until it controls the life of the learner. Of all this view of things, Psalm 139 is a classic instance. The Jewish people in the ancient world were very different from the Greeks. If you'd asked the Greeks what they thought about God, they would have talked about God's essence. They would have said such things as, God is the ground of all being, or God is the unmoved mover. They might have used words like omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, in order to describe what God is. The Hebrew people, on the other hand, did not even try to get at the essence of God. They knew it was past finding out. Instead of talking about what God is, the Jews always talked about what God did. If you had asked them about God, they would have said, Our God is the one who delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians and brought us into the promised land. Our God is the one who defended us against our enemies, has guided us and has made us his chosen people. The Jews would have talked about what God has done and is doing and would have contended that all we can know about God is from what we can deduce from his actions. They knew that they were in covenant relationship with God and that God would not break that covenant. They knew that God would go on loving them no matter what because of what he had done. Okay, so this psalmist is not trying to teach us abstract truth, present us propositional truth. He's trying to help us see who God is in words of one syllable, not multi-syllabic words. So this is how it goes. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my, depth, my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Are you ready? If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I'd like to suggest to you that those verses that jar near the end of the psalm, that get us and make us feel, as a Christian, ought I to be reading that? That sounds most unchristian. Where's the compassion in that? I would like to suggest to you that's where the psalm comes from. Isn't it true that the Middle East has always been a hotbed of warfare? Right from the time when Abraham thought God needed a helping hand and had a son called Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, by his wife's servant girl, who since Isaac was born have been at each other's throats right through history. So David, who wrote this son, lived in the same place that we've been praying for this morning. A hotbed of violence, hatred, wickedness. And if you think we're inventing new ways to kill each people, other people, think again, read the Psalms, and you will find people having infants dashed against rocks and things. They knew how to do it in those days too. And I would like to suggest to you, this Jewish man wrote this Psalm arising out of looking outward and seeing all the chaos, violence, hatred, wickedness, despicable things going on all around him. And that's where the psalm comes from. So far from being the jar, it's the core of the psalm. But what will he do with it? Sit and be impotent, angry, just shake his fist, get his army to go and get some other people. No, he brings it all to God. He brings it all to God. This is not a man wishing vengeance on people to get him off the hook. This is a man who brings it all to God. You'll find some commentators just find all sorts of ways of kind of getting around these difficult bits where it sounds like the psalmist has got his fist out, if not his sword, and shaking it at God. And they justify in all sorts of ways. It seems to me this is a man being real. And the first thing you can deduce from the psalms is you can be real with God, he can handle it. Do you ever feel like shouting, railing against God because of what's happening? It's okay, you can do it, God can handle it. Am I allowed to say that? Does that sound heretical? But you're able to. You're able to. This is a man speaking to God. And he explodes with anger at one point because you're able to do that. David was a man in tune with God. So instead of teaching doctrine as abstract concepts, this psalm presents a personal relationship with God with throbs with life. So the first six verses, which are about God knowing me completely, he could say, God is omniscient, and he would have covered it, but it wouldn't have caught you, would it? It would just, you know, one of those words, and you'd note it down in your notebook and put it in your filing cabinet, and that would be it, wouldn't it? So instead of that, he says, God knows me completely, and we get hold of that, don't we? Because one of the things that makes us worried about life is the fact that God might not know about things. God knows you completely. So if God knows me completely, he knows every movement my body makes. The Psalms, we mustn't sort of pick them all apart and say this is different from that different. What he's saying in these first six verses, I haven't read them yet. Oh yes, I have. I have. I nearly forgot I'd read them. I'm getting to that stage of life, you know. I read, wrote a letter the other day 
And then Lynn said, what are you doing? I said, writing a letter. That she said, you wrote that letter about a month ago. I checked and I had. And I wrote it again. So this, other, this company that's going to receive a second letter from me now is going to think, there's something wrong with this guy. He wrote us a letter a month ago about this issue. Poor chap, he's losing it, isn't he? Anyway, instead of saying God is omniscient, he says God knows me completely. And he uses terminology. He says he knows every move you make, every move your body makes, every habit of your life, every thought you entertain, and every word you speak, even before you speak it. Now, does that make you feel comfortable or nervous? I remember reading this in a home group once and asking people for their emotional response to the psalm. And one lady said, terrified. I don't think that's what David had in mind. But she was scared to death that God knew everything about her. Well, I suppose it's a bit of a mixture. But actually, isn't it reassuring in some ways that God does know the worst about me and still loves me? When he says, I love, loved you with an everlasting love, he does so from the perspective of saying, and I know you right through, and I know you more than you know you. There's things about you that you don't know about yourself yet. I do, and I love you anyway. I find that very reassuring. Because I can't surprise God in that sense. Oh, he can be disappointed in me, and I don't want to push my luck. But nonetheless, God is not surprised at anything. I find that reassuring, don't you? He knows everything that's visible on the outside that perhaps other people would know about me. So other people know where I'm going, they can see that. But they don't know what's going on inside. God does know what's invisible on the inside. The words I speak even before I've spoken them. So I can be honest in my dealings with God because he knows it anyway. Do you find yourself ever trying to tidy up the words you use and present yourself, as it were, with a mental shining of the shoes on the back of the legs, as it were, as you stand before the headmaster's office? ready to go in. Do you ever feel like that with your prayers, trying to neaten everything up, when actually life is ragged, torn, broken, and messy? And you feel, I can't go into God that way. He'll send me out again to wash my face. He won't. Not if he knows us already. Why would he do that? So we can be blatantly obvious and honest with our dealings with him, because he knows it anyway. We don't have to pretend we often have to pretend with each other for social smoothness. We can't actually tell everyone about everything that's going on in our lives, but we can be totally honest with God. So I never have to be anxious about God rejecting me. See, if I'm doing the mental bit about standing outside the headmaster's office, tidying myself, I'm doing so because I'm worried that if I present myself as I really am to the headmaster, he will say, out and never come back. Isn't that right? We feel the danger of rejection. So sometimes we pretend before God too. Scared that if we owned up to things, he would reject us. Oh, if that's what you're like then, I'm going to have nothing to do with you. And that terrifies us. But actually, if he knows everything anyway, and tells me he loves me, I don't have to worry about being rejected. Do I? And therefore I don't have to strive to be accepted he accepts me anyway. We spend most of our waking lives trying to make people accept us, love us, like us, don't we? In some way or other. There are a few folk around who are very settled and they don't try that, but most 
people, most of the time, certainly in certain circumstances, trying to help other people love them, aren't they? So you try and work out what people would like and you present that kind of side to yourself. But in terms of God, we don't need to do that because he accepts us anyway. And as far as these sort of rough verses at the end of the psalm are, of course, concerning looking at all this rough stuff that's going on that may even be affecting David in some way or other directly, he says, but God knows what I'm going through. He's not, oh, I'm glad you told me that, David. Now I know what's going on. Now I can do something. I'm sorry, I hadn't realized what you were going through. That's a nonsense, isn't it? So David can bring it all to God and be reassured, you know everything that's going on. Outwardly, inwardly, I don't have to strive. So he puts himself and knows he's secure in God. Verses 7 to 12 talk about God, God's omnipresence. But he doesn't say God is omnipresent, which is one of those words that turns you off. It's a theological word and you move on. He uses terminology like God is with me always. I can never get away from his presence. So he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Some people say, this is him wanting to flee from the presence of God. Well, it sounds like it, but I'm a little ambivalent about that because at verse 12 he says, um, sorry, verse 10 he says, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast, which are very positive things, aren't they? It's not, even there your hand will get me. It's my hand will hold me, you will guide me. It sounds like he wants to be with God. And he's just proposing, I can't get away from your presence, even if I wanted to try, which I don't. Wherever I went, there's no way of getting away from the presence of God. That's another of our fears. The fear that God isn't with me. It's a promise that God repeatedly makes right the way through the scriptures, old and new. I am with you always, says Jesus, even to the end of the age. You can rest assured with that. Nothing can separate me, you, from my love. Because one of those things, being on our own, is one of the things that terrifies us. Oh, we don't mind being on our own from time to time, but the sense of no one being around, being left alone, is quite debilitating. And certainly from God. And the darkest nights are those where you feel God is not listening, my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, God is not interested, I'm on my own, what am I going to do? But here, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Spirit, If I go up to the heavens, you're there. I can't, but I, if I did. If I make my, depths, my bed in the depths in shoal, I can't, but if I was, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, isn't that a lovely phrase? The wings of the dawn. Way to one side, you're there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, you're there. I can't go anywhere you're, where you're not. And even if it just seems dark, the, dark, the night is not dark to you. It's light. So it's dark to me, but not to you. There's nowhere I can go where you are not. If this is the case, then I can enjoy the company of God in any and every situation of my daily life. There's nothing in my life that cannot be an act of worship to God, for he is with me. I can call upon his help at any time, in any place. I don't have to find certain places here. So again, thinking of perhaps what's happening around him, the dreadful things that he's observing, he can say, but God is with me through this. 
I'm not on my own, struggling on my own. No situation is too deep or too dark or too far for God. This is the God we worship. David was a big king. He was a big king because he had a bigger God. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? You do, don't you? This little chap, and he was a little chap, was going to attack Goliath, who was a giant, a mobile machine, a warrior. And David took him on. Why could he take him on? Because David knew that God was bigger than anyone's biggest view of him. If he didn't have a big God, then he couldn't have done that. He wasn't being boastful, proud, arrogant. He just had a big view of God and therefore could take it on. Then he goes on to say, my life is in God's hands. The word for that is sovereignty. God's in control of things. But he talks about being in God's hands, even from his mother's womb. Verse 13 onwards, you created me right at the beginning in my mother's womb. Object lesson. We all look at Liz at this point. But it's true, isn't it? I bet it's made you reflect on things, hasn't it? The one thing that I always feel like when I'm... I mean, we pray for pregnant mums in the last three or four years, haven't we? Sort of four or five of them. And then they all have their children. We thought, oh, good for that. Then there's about three or four more. And it's wonderful. But every time I think of it, you know, it, the image that comes to mind is we are in Christ. Right? One of Paul's favourite terms for Christians, we are in Christ. The picture that comes to me of a child in the womb of the mother. The only way you can get to the child is through the mother. The child is safe, isn't it? All other things being equal, the child is safe because the child is in the womb of the mother. The only way to the child is through the mother. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? I love that. And David here is saying, even from the very beginning of my life, God put me together. All the days of my life, even before any of them came to be, were part of his plan. And it's not that God made me, then, then off you go, then wind them up and let them go. But actually God's in part of my life. He doesn't let us go just because uh, we've, we've been born. That's the when the good stuff starts. Good stuff starts, isn't it? Do you know the Koreans count the age of a child from the time of conception? So whatever your age is now, add a year to it. That's disappointing, isn't it? But, that's where, but it's actually quite biblical, isn't it? Because it's a child. You just don't know it yet. We've not been introduced to the child. So I hope for the church you'll have a wonderful celebration when you meet the child that you've been knowing all these years. And David says, God's thoughts can't be numbered. He's not exaggerating on that. God is greater, bigger, and it begins, every part of my life has been in his hands from beginning right through to the end and beyond. So I can be myself if this is true, if God has created me and everything he does is good, even though it can get spoiled in this world, and I realise some people are born with great difficulties. I understand that. That's part of the brokenness of this world. But nonetheless, we are God's workmanship, fearfully and wonderfully made. Therefore, I can be myself without regret. Please don't be anybody else, because if you're being someone else, who's being you? At one time in our lives, we knew two different people who were both very gifted people. And interestingly enough, we discovered from talking to them separately that they both envied the other very much. They wished they could be the other person. How crazy is that? But that's how it works. 
But if God is my creator, I can be me. I don't have to be anybody else. Be yourself. Know yourself and be yourself. And I therefore can accept other people without envy. I don't have to be jealous about what other people have got because I am me and they are them. And we are made in the image of God. And I can take responsibility for what I do in life. I don't have to blame other people because it's me living this life with God. So as David looks out on all that's around him, he can be himself and he thinks, well, if God is for me, who can be against me? Nobody. I am who I am. I don't have to be anybody else. And then you get to these difficult verses, verse 19 onwards, where he seems to shout and rail. And what's his greatest desire? What's David's greatest desire? God says this, he has has a heart like mine. David's greatest desire is to be holy. That's his greatest desire. Jesus will say this when he speaks on the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Thank you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you know why John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance? That Jesus might be revealed to Israel because he will be shown to those who are pure in heart. It's not a negative message, it's a positive message. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, I'm fully aware that we're not holy and won't be holy until that glorious day when we see God face to face in glory and then spend forever with him. But we're on the process, we're on the journey, and we can see God. So David's greatest desire is to be holy, which means that he hates everything that God hates. You are allowed to get worked up about what you see in your newspapers and on your television screens, because God does. His heart is full of pain. He weeps over his world. He is one day going to judge his world. This is not to say we're going to go and get people. Someone pointed out in their prayers that our our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Quite right too. But nonetheless, we should be incensed with every area of injustice, unrighteousness, and you and I both know lots of organisations that work precisely in those areas, trying to bring justice where there's no justice, compassion when there's just hatred, provision where there's deprivation, and so on. And he hates what God hates in the lives of other people. That's why he says, Lord, if you will slay the wicked. Notice he doesn't say, I want to go and get them, Lord. Let me go and get them. He says, you slay them. I leave it with you. Did you want to come up here and have a chat? How nice. So you hate what God hates in other people, but you also hate what God hates in yourself. So he follows this railing to God saying, do something, Lord. I leave it with you. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So that's what he's saying. Lord, you do it. He's handing over to God. He's not asking God to give him permission to go and kill a few thousand people. He's saying, it's over to you, Lord, because he hates what God hates. But notice his next verse, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me. I don't like what I see in either people, but nor do I like what I see in me. So deal with this. So he hates what God hates in others and he hates what God hates in me. 
So he invites God, says, check me out, Lord, because I don't want to be sinful. You check me. So he started by saying, you have searched me and you know me. And he ends by saying, search me and know me, Lord, because I want to be pure. So I love what God loves. Lead me in the way everlasting, which is to God, of course. That's how he finishes this psalm. Lead me in the way everlasting. You love the things that God loves. And no, so he's surrounded as a way his, 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 his frustration, his anger, his, his sadness for what he sees all around by reminding himself about who God is. And he says, I'm safe. The God who is there, one writer calls him. Securing God. You can think of your own title for this psalm. God who will never leave us nor let us alone. Let me finish with a little story. This is by Tony Campolo. As a boy growing up in the city, it was somewhat dangerous for me to walk to school all by myself. So my mother paid Harriet, a neighbourhood girl a few years older than I, to be responsible for getting me to and from school each day. Harriet was paid five cents a day for this service. As I grew older, I became very conscious of what I believed was an enormous amount of money going into Harriet's hands. So I went to my mother and told her that there was no need for her to pay Harriet any longer, that she should give me the money each day and I would walk myself to school. I assured her that I could do it with no problem at all. I kept on begging and begging until my mother gave in and said, OK, if you're very careful, I'll give you the money and you can put the money in the bank and save it to buy Christmas presents for your sisters. That seemed like a good idea, so from that time on, I walked myself to school, collected the money, and did not allow the Campolo wealth to leave the household. Years later, when my mother had passed on, I was at a family get-together with my sisters, and I reminded them of my independent spirit, even when I was a child. I reminded them of how I walked myself to school, and how I needed no one's help in getting there and back each day, and how that translated in good, into good presents for them at Christmas time. My sisters laughed at me, and one of them said, Did you think that you went to school alone and came home alone? Every day when you left the house, Mum followed you. And when you came out of school at the end of the day, she was there. She always made sure that you didn't notice her, but she watched over you coming and going just to make sure you were safe and that nobody hurt you. Didn't it ever occur to you that there was something strange about the fact that when you knocked on the door, she didn't answer right away, and that it always took a minute or so before she opened the door of the house to let you in? That's because she would, that's because she would follow you home and sneak in the back door. When she opened the front door and let you in, you were always left with the impression that you had been on your own, when in reality, she had been watching over you all the time. Well, I don't think God is playing games with us and sort of hiding behind the hedge and diving behind doors and things, but you get the point. So as you go into this week, I have no idea what you're facing, whether you're feeling you're surrounded by things and it's black as night and you feel all on your own and you feel the distance, or whether there's physical things that are overwhelming you or difficult people or scenarios. I want to tell you this, that God is with you. And there's nothing about your life he doesn't know about. You can just be you. Rest in him. Share anything you want with him at any point in the day. 
because he's with me every moment. Nothing will surprise him and he's keen for you to know that he is with you. He doesn't want to hide and pretend you're on your own. He wants you to know that he is with you. He is a very big God. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that we know about you. But more than that, Father, thank you for the program of revelation whereby we come to get to know you more and more. And I want to pray, Father, for all of us here that somehow through this week we'll come to know you better. We'll see you more clearly. Some of the things that happen in life this week, some of the ways in which you show yourself to us, will show us more of who you are. So Lord, help us to be the people you've created, to share with you our heartfelt feelings, good or bad, or everything in between, to know your presence, and to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.